I just want to very briefly uh, appreciate what uh, what Darcy said. I, w I wanted to uh, uh, just kind of reinforce uh, the fact that uh, God loves us. He has been involved with this church for the last several years. He cares about our children, and I have every confidence that he is going to bring us through this current time of transition to the next thing. I have absolutely no doubt that he has equipped his people with the things they need to do the things that he wants them to do. And if he hasn't done it yet, he's about to. I have every confidence that as we are faithful in following his lead, that he will be faithful in providing the things that we need. And uh, I am especially grateful that we have this challenge to go through as this body uh, with all of the talent that we have, all the gifts that we have, all the people we have who are so passionate and uh, so dedicated here. So uh, I am, I'm continue to be eager to see how God is going to work this out. And I am uh, excited about uh, not only the prospects for what is going to happen, but also for the ways in which he is going to be uh, holding us together as a body and enabling us to grow both individually and together as we go through this tra uh, transition. Um, and so uh, I just wanted to share with you for what it's worth um, from, from my vantage point as a pastor, I think not only that all is well, but that all manner of things shall be well with regard to our children's ministry. Uh, and I would also uh, echo what Darcy said about the importance of devoting ourselves to prayer and to listening to God through this. You may have heard it said that you, God gave you one mouth and two ears and you should operate accordingly. Uh, God also gave you one mouth but two knees, and that may be a co not a coincidence. Um, so I would urge you, uh, as you continue to think about this and discuss it, to make sure, and I, and I know that, that uh, in fact, uh, there are folks who are deliberately uh, arranging the time that they spend uh, in house church, for example, uh, according to this. So uh, I am... Uh, and I'm grateful to be uh, working along with, uh, with Darcy and, and Jan on this uh, transition, which continues apace. So uh, I'll just echo that uh, if you have any opinions, if you have any suggestions, any ideas, please do uh, send them along to Darcy, to Jan, Kummer, or myself. And we do have, if you go on the website and you look at the old Enu Hopes, if you look at the Enu Hope section of the website, uh, we sent one out, I think, last week that's got a link to the Google document that Chris um, mentioned. And uh, if you uh, have difficulty accessing that, you can contact Chris's emails in the back of the bulletin. Of course, if you have difficulty accessing that, you may have difficulty having email. So uh, get his number and you can call him. Um, or we can print one out for you, no trouble. All right. Well, it, it is interesting, too, that Chris uh, completely screwed up in his announcement talking about an Easter egg hunt this afternoon, because it's not an Easter egg hunt. We don't do Easter egg hunts here at New Hope. The reason for that is that the unholy union of the Christian holiday of Easter with the eggs and bunnies and ducks and whatnot is the sort of thing that we try to avoid. It's interesting. This morning, uh, my uh, my older daughter Kara had a friend sleep over, and when her her mother came to pick her up this morning, she had uh, she she asked about the, about uh, the the bunnies and and the eggs, and she said, "I always kind of wondered, like, why rabbits and why eggs at Easter?" 
Uh, I mean, I, I guess eggs because of, you know, birth. But was the bunny's fertility? I said, well, yeah, actually, yeah, that's, you know, we talk about breeding like bunnies. There's a reason why that uh, phrase came, uh, came about. And, and, in fact, the, the word Easter derives from the Latin estrus, which means to be in heat. So an, anim- an animal is in heat when it's fertile. It is said to be in estrus. So Easter, in, in the pagan sense, is a springtime festival of new birth, of new life, when, when all this stuff that once was dead is now wildly popping up out of the ground, ready for you to take your weed be gone and address the matter. But the other reason that we try assiduously to separate our Christian holiday of Easter from the duckies and the birdies and the bunnies and the eggs is that symbols are important because symbols tell us stories. And symbols can tell good stories and symbols can also tell bad stories. So if we call them Easter eggs... It can be very easy for us to conflate the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ with this common springtime phenomenon that is recognized by the egg, which represents not only delicious omelets, but new birth. And so we want to make sure that we don't confuse the two, even though there are points of resonance, and even though in some ways this sort of pagan festival of new birth, does in some ways point to what is going on in the resurrection. It is a pale imitation of it, and it is an arrow pointing in that direction. But, of course, when you see an arrow pointing in a direction, you're not supposed to stand there staring at the arrow. You're supposed to be looking at what it's pointing to. And here in chapter 16 of Leviticus, we have a couple of... Symbols, pictures, telling a story. We're here, uh, for those of you uh, who are new or who just haven't been paying attention for the last several months, we are uh, going through Torah this year. We're going through the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're right around the middle of the whole thing here in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And in chapter 16, we have the ordinances for Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar. This is the day, as we'll see, when atonement is made for the sins of the people. So we read here in chapter 16, verse 1, that Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached Yahweh. We read that back in chapter chapter 10, Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's sons, who approached the Lord with strange fire. They brought incense in the manner that they thought best rather than the manner that God had told them to, and he smote them. Yahweh said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he feels like it into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he'll die, because I appear in that cloud of the atonement cover. If you remember the way that God had set up the tabernacle, the way he commanded his people to build this was that there was an, an outer court where sacrifices could be offered. That's when any worshiper, where any worshiper would be when they were bringing a, an offering. And then inside, you, inside the tent, you had the holy place. And that was the place where only the priests who were ministering inside the temple, who were involved in offering incense or in trimming the wicks or in uh, the, the lampstand or, or placing the, the bread of 
the presence that was there. The, the priests who had to be in there to do something would be in the most holy place, but nobody else could go in. And then behind the holy place, there was the most holy place. There was not a super most holy place behind that. This is it. The most holy place was the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested. That was the place where it was understood that God's presence was. And that was the place where once a year, and only once a year, the high priest of Israel, and only the high priest of Israel, would enter in order to be involved in the rituals for making atonement for the sins of the people. Only him, only once a year. And this is that once a year. So this is how Aaron, and presumably after Aaron dies, those who follow in his footsteps, this is how he's to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. And we read in Exodus, right, about how God wanted these garments to be made. And, and he, he's very precise about how all the instruments for worship, from, from the way that the, the forks used to turn the meat on the, on the grill, uh, I'm sorry, the altar, um, were, were to, be, to be made, to, to the, the dimensions of the temple and the materials used, to the, the sacred garments that we're going to read about here that the high priest wears. So he's going to bathe himself with water before he puts them on. The, the high priest does a lot of bathing, but, which is probably good because traditionally the high priest had to stay up all night the night before the Day of Atonement. Anybody remember why? This, we, we talked about this last week, actually. What's one of the ways that a person can become unclean until the evening? And Georgia, cover your ears. What's one of the ways that a man can... Uh, yes, Ron? Well, he could be with his wife, or he could simply inadvertently over the night have an emission of bodily fluids, right? Because that can happen. And to make sure that doesn't happen, they, they had a team of guys who basically would hang out with the high priest all night. And they would read from him all sorts of interesting and obscure parts of the Bible to try to keep his attention engaged. And if he started to fall asleep, junior apprentice priests had the job of snapping their fingers in his face and telling him to, you know, in all great due and respectful terms, wake up. So the next day, fortunately, he's doing a whole lot of, of, of getting in and out of water. That, that probably is going to keep him alert. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So he's to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, as we've seen uh, elsewhere in Leviticus, and we won't go back and rehearse it now, God has regulations as to how the, the offerings for the people are to be brought, but also the priest has to make special offerings for himself and for his own household, for the, the priestly caste. And then he's to take these two goats and to present them before Yahweh at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other for the scapegoat. The Hebrew there is Azazel, and we'll talk about that. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to Yahweh and sacrifice it for his sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for Azazel shall be presented alive before Yahweh to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. 
So Aaron's going to bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. He's to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before Yahweh and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense. And he's to take them behind the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before Yahweh. And the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he doesn't die. He's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. So then he slaughters the goat for the sin offering for the people. He takes its blood behind the curtain, does with it as he did with the bull's blood. He's, he shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. Remember, the atonement cover is, is the, also known as the mercy seat. That's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, right? In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he's to do the same thing for the tent of meeting, which is among them in their midst of their uncleanness. No one's to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. And again, the rabbinic tradition is that Aaron, uh, or the high priest, would have a, a rope tied around his ankle so that in case he died while he was doing this, he could be pulled out so nobody would have to go in after him, which is where they were not supposed to be going. So then he shall come out to the altar that's before Yahweh and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the corners of the altar. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. So this is, the, this is what happens with the, the blood of the goat that is sacrificed. Now, his other goat, who at this point is quaking in his boots probably, when Aaron has made, finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins and put them on the goat's head. And he shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of a man appointed for their task. That goat is going to carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Two goats. One goat that is sacrificed, and one goat for Azazel. On the cover of your bulletin, that uh, cool-looking Hebrew word there, Azazel, is actually misspelled. I noticed that this morning. Uh, but nobody really knows what Azazel means. Okay, this is another one of those good parts yet. Yeah, the, the, uh, the first olive should be an ayin for those of you who, who wanted to, uh, to know about that. Um, no, nobody's quite sure what this Azazel thing means. This is one of those fun places in Scripture where you have a bunch of very, very, very smart interpreters going, I don't know. There are some who say that uh, Azazel was the name of a demon in the desert. And so when you're sending the goat off, you're sending the goat off in order to appease the demon. The problem with that is that that doesn't really work very well with the rest of Torah, which doesn't seem to give a lot of respect to uh, supposed other deities and certainly doesn't want to be giving them any tribute. Uh, what you could say is that, well, if, if uh, Azazel is, is, sort of, is representative of a place of, of sin or of 
uh, separation from God, then you're sending the goat off to that realm. That maybe works. The more conservative Jewish commentators are convinced that Azazel actually refers to a cliff, uh, an especially rocky place that the goat was led to. Uh, because if this goat is bearing the sins of the people, you don't want the goat wandering back into the camp, right? So one way to make sure he doesn't do that is to push him off of a cliff, right? You're not, you're not supposed to sacrifice it, but, you know, if just sort of by accident you happen to bump it and it went off a massive cliff and they actually talk about how the goat would be, would, would fall so far and so hard and the, the cliff was, was so uh, impressive that it would be dismembered by the time it got to the bottom. Fairly safe bet it's not coming back after that. But there's another way of looking at it that I found uh, not only made more sense, but I thought it captured the symbolism of what's going on here better. Another way you could look at it is simply to see, to, to understand Azazel as meaning the goat that is going away, the goat that is escaping. We, we think of a scapegoat, what do we think of? Right? Scapegoat is the person in your office who has to take the fall when something goes wrong. You know, that's the person that everybody blames. Uh, but if you think about it, the scapegoat could just mean the goat that escapes, the goat that gets away, unlike his brother who is... Uh, slaughtered and, and burned on the altar. Could just be this is the goat that goes away. In fact, one commentator says we should just call it the go-away goat, which lacks in elegance what uh, it, it uh, maintains in accuracy, perhaps. But the Azazel goat could just be the goat that goes off. And wilderness could mean the desert, could mean that it's going to go someplace where it's not going to be able to survive and it's going to die. Or it could just mean a place that is not among the people and not necessarily settled, but someplace that's sort of, uh, you know, uh, between the settled area and the absolute reaches of the desert where, you know, your typical goat would be able to make a living. We don't know. But here's why this other way of looking at it is attractive to me. If you look back in chapter 14, and I know this is a, a page that's just falling out of your Bibles from how often we read this, when we learn about the regulations for the diseased person at the time of a ceremonial cleansing from leprosy, when he's brought to the priest, starting chapter 14, verse 3, the priest is to go outside the camp and examine the person. And if he's been healed of his infectious skin disease, the priest shall order two live uh, order that, I'm sorry, order that. He doesn't, you know, call up and place an order. I'd like two live clean birds, please, and some cedar wood. Um, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedar wood. Scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the one to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. Of course, the priest has to order this stuff up. Why? Guy hasn't been cleansed yet. So he can't go to the place where you get these clean birds. Otherwise, then they're contaminated. So the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He's then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn, and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the infectious disease and pronounce him clean. And then what does he do with the live bird? Let's him go. Releases him. Out into the open field. Same thing with cleansing from mildew. I won't read the passage, but same thing. You have two birds. One of them is killed. The other one is dipped in the blood of the one that is killed and is sent off. Goes free. 
So here in the Yom Kippur ritual, on the Day of Atonement, we have two goats. We have the goat that is sacrificed, and we have the Azazel goat, the go-away goat, the escaping goat, the goat that goes off, that leaves. And it may well be that we need both of these pictures, both of these symbols, both of these goats to help us understand what it is for sin to be atoned for. To understand what is involved when the sins of the people are dealt with. We have the one goat that is slain because as we read all through the scriptures, and as the writer of Hebrews puts it, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Think about the, the very, very beginning, the story of Adam and Eve, right? We have Adam and Eve sinning. And because of that, they realize, ooh, we have a problem here. So they sew for themselves these garments of fig leaves. God Tim Gunn of the day is not impressed. He decides that they need to have something else. So God makes for themselves garments of skin to cover them, to cover their nakedness. Well, the thing with a garment of skin is you have to get that skin from an animal. And animals tend not to willingly part with their skins. So you have there the first and by no means the last situation in Scripture where there is blood shed to deal with sin. We hear this in the cry of Abel's blood from the ground, right? When God confronts Cain. He says, where's your brother? And Abel's like, what am I, his babysitter? God said, well, no, I didn't say you were baby, his babysitter, but I kind of hoped that you wouldn't be his murderer either. His blood cries out to me from the ground. And we see in the next chapter of Leviticus, then chapter 17, there's a prohibition of, on eating blood, right? Any Israelite or any, even any alien living among them who eats any blood, I'm going to set my face against that person who eats blood. I'm going to cut him off from his people for the life of a creature is in the blood. I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. I didn't give it to you to make blood sausage. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So that's why I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may an alien living among you eat blood. So any Israelite or any alien living among you who, who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten, they need to drain the blood out and cover it up with earth because the life of every creature is in the blood. That's why I've said to the Israelites, just in case you haven't gotten this, this is about the fourth time I'm saying it right now, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Now, this goes all the way back to, to Noah, right? The Noahide commandments. After uh, everything dries out, God says to Noah, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. So I'm declaring the end of forced vegetarianism. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And this is very, 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 very important for Judaism. You, you, you see this going on in, in Acts. There's a, a, a dispute 
in, in the book of Acts between people who were following Jesus who came from a background of, of Judaism. They were Jewish believers in Jesus, recognizing him as the, as the Messiah. Then you had these Gentile, non-Jewish believers in Jesus, and the Gentiles would sort of eat meat however they wanted to, and they would have their, their blood sausage, and this was deeply offensive to the Jewish believers. And so in the letter that the Church of Jerusalem writes to their brothers, the Gentile believers, and that's the Gentile brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. A big deal, by the way, for a Jew to call a Gentile a brother. This is the kind of reconciliation that came through Jesus. But they said, look, we, we really, you know, we don't want to burden you with anything beyond a, a few requirements here. We want you to abstain from food sacrificed to idols. We want you to abstain from blood. We want you to abstain from the meat of strangled animals. We want you to abstain from sexual immorality. This is important to us. So this blood, the fact that the life is in the blood, and so the shedding of blood means the loss of life. This is really, really important. Right Right now, our, our Jewish friends are preparing to, to celebrate Passover, right? What happens on Passover other than, you know, cleaning out all the yeast? And what did the Israelites have to do as they got ready to leave? They just slaughter a lamb. And if they're too poor to afford a lamb, they'd go in with other families and all get together to get a lamb. But everybody had to get a lamb, and you had to slaughter it, and you had to put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, on the lintel, because the angel of Yahweh was about to come through and execute the final plague, the death of the firstborn. But when he saw that blood, he wouldn't enter that house because the people were covered in the blood of the lamb. I think I may have heard that somewhere else. There's one writer I read this week who said that if you drain the blood out of the church, all you have left is a corpse. We cannot escape the blood. We cannot simply spiritualize it. We cannot just treat it as a metaphor. And we certainly can't look at it as a relic of an earlier time when people felt like blood was necessary to work atonement, but we're much more sophisticated than that right now. You get the sense that part of what was going on in the Yom Kippur atonement ritual was that God was reminding his people with the goat that got away that their sins are removed from them, never to come back. But there's two goats. The only way that goat gets away is if the first goat is slaughtered so that its blood may be sprinkled on the atonement cover. And that also is powerful. And that also is a reminder that the privilege of having your sins taken away is only purchased at a cost. Our sin is gone. It's never to return. But it's because 
God has done business with his people, and God's people have brought the appropriate and the necessary sacrifice to God. The resonances with what happened on Good Friday are difficult to miss, and that's what we're going to be talking about on Good Friday and on Easter. The writer to the Hebrews picks up these themes and just brilliantly wraps them all together in, in, in chapters 8 through 10 of Hebrews. It makes it all make sense. And that's where we're going to be, thanks to the way that the Jewish liturgical calendar goes in terms of their reading over Passover. We get a week off from Torah. And we're going to use it before we get back to the really controversial stuff on the other side of Easter. Our sins are gone. We've been set free because we have been ransomed by the blood that was shed. And by his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to be people who receive gladly your word, who receive with gratitude the pictures and the symbols that you want to give us. Pray that we would be attentive to the realities that they point to, but that we would be respectful. of these things that you've given us that do point to them. We pray that we would humbly learn what it is that you have decided you need to teach us. Pray that we would be patient and attentive hearers of your word when it's easy and when it's difficult, when it's clear and when it's not so clear when it's comforting and when it is confronting us, even offending us. Give us the grace to receive with gratitude what you give us so freely and so graciously. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.